president talked about doing a Google News search of his own name and, and being unhappy with the news outlets that were turning up uh, in that Google News search. So today, uh, this afternoon, we see more of the same kind of criticism from the president saying that uh, Google and Twitter and the others uh, really ought to be careful uh, in terms of what they're doing. Uh, the president raising the idea that uh, they are somehow putting their thumb on the scale ideologically. Perhaps... But we certainly live in a an age in which there's a growing awareness that the tech giants are exerting influences on our lives beyond looking stuff up for us or beyond connecting us with our old high school boyfriend, etc. And uh, to further the discussion, we're joined by Adam White, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, where I would like to be right now studying that very thing, but I'm a wage slave, like so many of our listeners instead. Adam, how are you, sir? Good, thanks. I hear today you're doing uh, two jobs for one man. That's that's quite impressive. You know, uh, it's taking a lot of courage. I don't mind saying it, Adam. <laughs> I'm a brave little man. No, it's 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 fine. We miss Jack, but he'll be back uh, pretty quickly. So uh, so listen, um, just uh, you know, to to get back to my brief introduction. The weight of the tech giants is is beginning to be considered by people like you and and us in ways that it sure hasn't before, and I think it's a, a timely discussion. Well, thanks. This is something I've been thinking about for a few years now. I spent a few years on a, a long piece that just came out this spring in a journal called The New Atlantis. The piece is called Google.gov, and it turns out the timing really couldn't have been better. The piece came out just at the moment that the country, and now the president, Asking basic questions about Google. The great irony is for the last couple of decades, we've relied on Google to answer so many of our questions, and now suddenly we're struggling to find answers about questions about Google itself. Well, help us understand um, the connection between Google and government. What should we be uh, concerned about? Well, in the piece, I try to focus readers' attention beyond some of the more immediate controversies. There was the controversy with the Google engineer, James Damore, who had criticism of the culture within Google. There's always been concerns about the revolving door between Google and the Obama administration and Google and democratic politics. And those are all important debates. And and President Trump has now honed in on the fact that people have basic doubts about uh, whether the, the, the search results they're getting when they ask a question to Google are objectively the best results or whether they're skewed in one direction or another. But for me, and this is the point of the piece, I think the most important thing to understand about Google and the progressive and progressive politics is that when Google's leaders, Sergey Brin and Larry Page and Eric Schmidt, when they look out at the world, I think they see it in the same way that President Obama or Cass Sunstein or others see the world. They see it as a series of engineering problems that could just be fixed if the smart people just nudge us in the right direction. And at first, when Google was just a basic search engine, it was, that was one thing. But now that Google is doing more and more, and it plays a more central role in our lives, including every time you probably pick up your phone and run a search on your smartphone for some web page, Google has immense power. And I think we all need to grapple with that. Wow, how interesting. So this gets back to the eternal argument, you know, poor Adam Smith rolling over in his grave that we're still arguing about this, whether free markets make the best decisions or if learned bureaucrats can only guide us toward our utopia. Right. And and with Google, then, it becomes especially challenging because on the one hand, Google is a private company. 
Um, it's owned by its, its shareholders and, and run by its management separate from government. And I think the, the, the proper conservative instinct is to be reluctant to get in and, and, and regulate. Uh, on the other hand, Google has immense power, uh, unlike almost any other company. And we keep talking about Google and Facebook and, and Twitter together, I think because they play such a singular role. And so the question becomes, well, how much power is too much power? And we can think about it in terms of monopoly, although that's kind of an ill fit for Google for a few ways. And we can think about it in other ways. But I think right now, and this was the point of my piece is in the New Atlantis, was that right now, before we rush to any conclusions about a policy, let alone you know President Trump's uh, you know indication that maybe we need to do something quickly, I think the most important thing we need to do right now is is sit down and think about what Google is, what we want it to be, and whether the market is bringing Google in the right direction or whether Google is serving a lot of non-market purposes call for a policy response. Interesting. So do I understand correctly that <clears throat> you have kind of two-pronged concerns? Number one is the obvious. Uh, you don't want the railroad barons in bed with big government because of, uh, you know, exercising monopoly powers or getting too sweet a deal, crony capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, the classic, you know, well, crony capitalism. Uh, but also the fact that they're an information and data giant, and that yeah. is especially dangerous. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's that second concern that I think is really tough to, to, to grapple with. From the very beginning, Google's mission statement, I mean, its most famous mission statement is don't be evil. It's had a second mission statement. It's always said Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Which is and a lovely, very, lovely idea. Yeah, and, and it is. And it sounds, it, on, on the one hand, it sounds it sounds like a great idea. On the other hand, Questions about what information is more useful than others, right? What's the most useful way to bring it to somebody? This ends up bringing in some deeply subjective value choices. And we've seen this play out through Google's history, its objective mission and its subjective don't be evil mission. We've seen it play out overseas where China, you know, years ago, Google entered the Chinese market and found it very difficult to grapple with the basic, uh, the, basic, the basic problems posed by the Chinese regime, and now Google might re-enter that market. We've seen it in Europe, where Google has tried to grapple with things like, like uh, you know, Nazi, Nazism online, and what should it do with that information? And here in the United States, it hasn't done as much with its, its search results, but in the advertising side of its operations, we've seen Google um, adjust its advertisement policy around things like payday loans and other, and other sort of unfavored or politically disfavored uh, markets and Google for its own sort of self uh, for its own selfish purposes has been perfectly content to prioritize its own web pages like Google's financial pages over those of its competitors like Yahoo Finance even when at the time you know its competitor services seemed much better and so in many respects Google's work of, of giving you search results is much more complicated than it might seem at first. And while it, it, it tries to be or it says it's trying to be objective, there's so much room for, sub, for subjectivity, not objectivity, uh, to creep into what it's doing. And it, it's very hard to unpack. Adam White is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of the Center for the Study of Administ the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, a fine institution indeed. Hey, let's uh, for folks not hip to this, because in the midst of the, the, the great scrutiny paid to Facebook in recent months, which was more than deserved in my opinion, 
Um, people forget that Google dwarfs Facebook in in some ways. I mean, it's number one, it's ubiquitous, and number two, its uh, its ability to track you and to collect data on you is is uh, monstrous. Yeah, yeah. This that that news broke while I was traveling overseas for work, and so I wasn't able to keep up as much with this locational scandal. But it really is jaw dropping, as I understand it, the fact that Google was tracking people's locations even when the user thought that it, it had disabled that. Yeah, yeah, and that's just one example of many of they know everything about you all the time. So. That's right, and quite frankly, they know everything about us because more often than not, we, we invite them into our lives, right? We use Gmail, we use Google, we use all these things because the products are amazing. Right. And a part of the products are amazing precisely because they have so much data and they can then tailor their services to you in a way that very few companies, other than maybe Facebook and Amazon, can. It's an, it's an incredible, incredible thing. And one thing I'd add is you know, when I started working on this project a few years ago, the Google.gov project, it was just sort of an abstract concern that I had about Google's power. I have to say what we've seen in the aftermath of the last presidential election has been pretty incredible. I was concerned at first that Google would just sort of tacitly move towards progressive politics in some worrisome ways. But now seeing Democratic politicians or, or Democratic political activists actively demanding that Google take affirmative steps to counteract what they see as problems in our news industry or problems in the, in, of the, uh, the information that reaches voters, right? this, this, I think, is extremely worrisome. Because if there's one aspect of our, of our, of our constitutional order and our politics that we need to be very sensitive about, it's about the information that informs our politics and that informs our voters. And when a company like Google, which in many ways is the most powerful, you can analogize it to the most powerful newspaper our country has ever seen, when that organization, that company, begins to move in, in intentionally political directions, that becomes a real problem for just the basic functioning of our democracy. Well, my... So I, I don't, oh, go ahead. Oh, please, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know anything about... You know, what searches President Trump was doing and, and what sort of triggered his, his, his concerns about this, I have no idea. But I do think that, that we all ought to be concerned, no matter what our politics, about any one company having that much power over the basic news and information uh, uh, distribution that informs our politics. So my re- reaction, as I'm sure yours is, to most questions as to uh, should we, shouldn't we regulate, blah, 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 is, is generally no. No, for God's sake, let the market function. I, I don't want bureaucrats in charge of anything. Are you saying that because the left in particular is so aggressively trying to regulate Google and what it does in ways that serve their purposes, that maybe there needs to be some sort of uh, regulation uh, as if Google were a public utility, that its neutrality should be uh, somehow managed? Well, one of the great ironies of all this is precisely because Democrats are more willing to wield regulatory power against targets like Google than conservatives are. Uh, Google has more incentive to to placate the left than the right, right? precisely because of that. So they have more reason to be scared of the left than the right normally. It's interesting to see President Trump sort of deploy that instinct from the right. Um, I'm not saying that there needs to be regulation, public utility or not, or or what's now being called search neutrality, kind of like net neutrality, but for search engines. I'm not there yet, but I do think it's something that conservatives need to begin to think about. I think we need to think about whether Google should be regulated, 
But before we get to that, we have to ask, well, what is Google? And what is it that we think is good or bad about Google? And what is it within the plausible power of government to fix, right? Just because there's a problem doesn't mean government can solve it. Right. We need to think about that. I think no matter what happens, it's going to require legislation, right? This is a conversation that requires Congress to get involved. If there's going to be anything, it's really going to need to be thought out in Congress, which I know is sometimes a contradiction. Hmm. Um, it needs to be thought out in Congress. And if, if there is going to be policy on this, it needs to begin with fresh legislation, maybe even a fresh regulatory body separate from the FCC or the FTC. But Congress really needs to, if they're going to do anything, they need to build this from the ground up. And before they do that, because whatever they do, whatever law they pass, if they pass a law, it's going to, it's going to control this for, for years and decades, just like the, we still live under the, 19, the 1934 Communications Act. Whatever Congress does, they need to spend some years thinking seriously about this. And so I think the, the worst thing that could happen would be hasty action right now in the political moment by a regulatory body. Right, here, here. The best thing that could happen would be Congress thinking about it for a while. Adam White, Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Adam, it's always great to talk. Thanks a million. Likewise, thank you. Really, uh, really thought-provoking. Yeah, so we're at the point of just, we, we got to wrap our arms around the tech giants and, and the influence they have. And, and the idea of who is bullying them and how... And given their enormous weight, what to do about it? Well, that's a tough one, especially from a libertarian perspective. On the other hand, if, quote-unquote, the other side, and we're all Americans, my friends, but if, quote-unquote, the other side is willing to wield government power to twist an entity that powerful into executing its wishes, what's the neutralizing strategy? Man, that's a beast of a problem. More to come, lighter, lighter, lighter than that, because that's a that's a super heavyweight on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty, the conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. A new study just came out that claims that no, no amount of alcohol is good for you. Yeah. Yeah. In response, Americans said, do we look like we want what's good for us? Ah. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Welcome to it. It's funny, we received an email from Vicky about this very study, which I hadn't heard about. Uh, it was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. No amount of alcohol is good for you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I thought you'd love this excerpt. Um, according to the study, if you gather together 100,000 teetotalers in a single year, 914 of them can be expected to develop breast cancer, liver cancer, or one of other 23 other health problems. If you gather together 100,000 people who only consume a drink a day, 918 of them will come down with those same health problems. Final result, consuming one drink a day will cause four of every 100,000 people to get sick. 
That's an incredibly low risk factor. It means that if you're a moderate drinker, your health would be far better served by buying a fire extinguisher or a bike helmet than quitting the sauce. In an extended critique of the Lancet study, British statistician David Spiegelhalter calculated that on average it would take an incredible 400,000 bottles of gin to prompt a single extra health problem among moderate (laughs) drinkers. With these kind of numbers, uh, Spiegelhalter was particularly critical of the study's conclusion that public health agencies should, quote, consider recommendations for abstention. Wrote Spiegelhalter, quote, there's no safe level of driving, but governments do not recommend that people avoid driving. Come to think of it, there is no safe level of living, but nobody would recommend abstention. Man, there's a lot of crap science in the world. I try not to be cynical. I try to be skeptical, not cynical. Uh, but it, it gets harder and harder. Coming up in a moment, the science between hot selfies. New research has revealed, <laughs> wow, here I am talking about crap science. <laughs> and then I hit you with this. Yes, I am capable of appreciating irony. It's the quandaries of modern life. But I am assured by certain members of the Armstrong and Getty team that this really is revealing in a huh thing. The science behind why ladies like to pose in front of their phones and get hot, hot photos. On a somewhat related topic. Oh, we don't really have time, do we? We got like two minutes, huh, Michael? Very quickly. We talked about women in the workplace and queen bees yesterday. Uh, gals who bully other gals in the workplace and how they can make it, life miserable. Here's, um, you know, I'm going to keep everybody anonymous because I didn't mark off and I just didn't want to, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But I'm a 52-year-old female for the last five years, been able, blessed to work from home. Before that, I can honestly say. She's been a 52-year-old female for five years? Shut up. I had one job (laughs) where I got along with the three other women who worked in the same room as myself. Other than that, nada. Women can be the most horrible creatures to work with. Drama, drama, drama. Give me a room full of men to work with any day over one female coworker. Um, <clears throat> I love working in a male environment, writes another gal. Women are too petty. That said, the reason why average women don't like working with, quote, popular women is that they're generally good-looking and men treat them entirely differently. Men lose their brains and think with other body parts. Am I being petty or truthful? No, you're being truthful. There's absolutely truth to that. Uh, queen bees in nursing. I'm a male nurse working in a busy inner city hospital. Easily five to one female to male work environment. I'm surrounded by queen bees. Can confirm they are way more ruthless on each other than the other than the males. Additionally, they're often more vulgar and sexual than men I work with, etc. Backstabbing, gossip, teaming up on each other, click against click, click against individual clique. He means all while smiling through their ever present RBF, resting bitch face, shivers in terror. I'm a woman who worked in a large office with many women and hated it. So much gossip, backstabbing, etc. And I spent 20 years in a small office as the only woman in the company and loved it. More on that to come and a fascinating reveal. Marsha Phillips, what are your headlines? Catholic leader comparing the alleged level of corruption in the Catholic Church to the Mafia and highlights from one of the most lively political debates so far this season. Excellent. Well, stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. There's a lot of Beltway stuff that's bandied about on cable news and talk radio and the alphabet networks that just it doesn't matter. That's just what they're all obsessed with. 
On the other hand, the departure of Don McGahn, the White House counsel, yeah. might actually have greater significance, and we're going to talk to Gabby Morangello of the Washington Examiner about that in a little bit. Um, whether you love or hate the current administration, again, that could be a, a significant move. Plus, more reaction to the whole Queen Bee discussion. Uh, here's your fascinating reveal. And if it's not fat, it's fascinating, well, I'm a liar and a serial exaggerator. <laughs> We received many dozens of texts and emails from women about working with women okay. and, and, and the difficulties of it. And my, my always disclaimer, I believe in balance. I think uh, the world needs men, women, masculinity, femininity, uh, all people, all philosophies, left, right. I think that's the way it functions, and that's what we need. Um, having said that, we did not get a single effing email saying, oh, no, that's not right. Or, I'd prefer to work with women. Not one! Really? Not one text! Well. Not one! Now, that might draw one, but I'm practically begging for any woman to say, oh, no, no, I'd, I'd prefer to work with women than men. Not one! Now, how could that be? How, and, and, and that be a completely undiscussed reality. Well... Uh, women discuss it a lot, but undiscussed in the greater media uh, by anyone that that's one of the real challenges women have in the workplace. It's funny, it's because it doesn't fit the narrative. So nobody wants to bring that up, or it's blaming the victim or something. They, the, people's desire to control the narrative, whether it's the scum-sucking fascist of Antifa deciding they don't want to hear your ideas so you should have your head caved in, or or or, or Google massaging its results, or... Uh, you people on college campuses trying to brand something hate speech just because you don't like it. The, the desire to massage the discussion is destructive. Join me as a First Amendment freak. Not only the First Amendment, but the idea of the free exchange right, of ideas. Right. Never mind whether Congress has a role or the government or whatever. Embrace the free exchange of ideas. Bad ones die from sun, su- sunlight. Anyway, screed over. Marshall Phillips, what's our news? Well, the Archbishop who says Pope Francis should resign now claims corruption reaches the highest levels of Catholic Church leadership. Archbishop uh, Carlo Vigano is a former Vatican ambassador to the U.S. Today he compared church cover-ups of sexually abusive leaders to what he called the conspiracy of silence that prevails in the mafia. The Vatican had no comment on Vigano's new accusations. You know what we need right now, Cardinal? We got to get an amen. You got to be working your boys, working your probably poor choice of words. Yeah. You 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 have to be lobbying your friends, your coworkers, your your associates, your colleagues. Say, fellas, this is a critical moment. We're here. Are we here for Jesus or are we here, quote unquote, for the church? You got to come out and, and tell the folks I'm right. We need more than just his voice. Pagano last weekend charged in an 11-page statement that Pope Francis knew for years about sexual misconduct by the former Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, and did nothing about it. When asked to confirm or deny the charge, the Pope told reporters to go ahead and read Pagano's statement and decide for themselves he would not confirm or deny. And some of you bishops and priests and cardinals who might be listening, chuck your career. You'll be fine. You'll be hailed as a hero. Go become a Lutheran or something. Lutherans are nice people. Episcopalians are Catholic light. That'll get some angry emails. Um, Don't worry about it. 
serve the Lord, not the institution, huh? New York Governor Andrew Cuomo debated challenger Cynthia Nixon yesterday, nearly two weeks away from the state's Democratic primary. The event held Oh, man, who do, you, who do you root for in that one? The squawking communist from Sex in the City, who, as I said earlier, is at least sincere. Right. I mean, she believes this incredibly bad stuff that she touts. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, on the other hand, is the most cynical syndicate uh, dynasty thief crooked politician you can imagine the event broadcast by cbs2 the exchanges at times actually turned rather ugly you don't snap your fingers as governor and it happens well i propose it every year please can you stop can you please stop interrupting can you please do that if you stop lying i will stop interrupting the, the subway NTA system. Has been controlled Excuse by the state me. Since 1965. Can, you, can you stop interrupting? Can you stop interrupting? Can you stop lying? Yeah. Uh, as soon as you do. Oh, oh there you we go. got her there. <laughs> what about what about when you lie? I'm, I'm rubber, you're glue. <laughs> Takes one to no one. Anyway, uh, the winner of the September 13th primary will face the Republican and Independent challengers in the uh, race for Gov. Oh, speaking of gubernatorial races, probably won't get to this later, but uh, Gavin Newsom is out and proud. Universal health care, government health care, single payer, in California for everyone, including illegal aliens. Anybody who sneaks into the state or comes across the border or whatever, the taxpayers will foot the full bill for their health care. The tax base, of course, will continue to narrow so the people actually hammered by that will not have a vote or not have a say in whether that happens or not. But that's a pretty, pretty Gavin Newsom platform. And we got a UC San Diego professor who's got an idea on why the diplomats in Cuba and China became ill. Dr. Beatrice Golan. Oh, yes. Thinks it may have been pulsed radio frequency microwave electromagnetic radiation. That's just what I suspected. Her conclusions could help the government determine what afflicted American and Canadian diplomats who reported hearing loss, nausea, and cognitive issues in the past while they were serving in those two countries. They suspected it was some sort of sonic attack, and the professor's writing, quote, everything fits. The specifics of the varied sounds that diplomats reported hearing during the apparent uh, episodes, like chirping, ringing, and buzzing, cohere in detail with known properties of so-called microwave hearing, also known as the fray or fry effect. We're actually seeking out the good doctor for a conversation. I hope we can talk to her. Um, in my opinion, if this can be nailed down with any solid degree of certainty. Right. We need to send cruise missiles into those countries. And I know that would be incredibly controversial. You know what? We'll give them we'll give them 24 hours notice. Hey, get all the people out of there. Get get the humans out of there. We are going to level several square blocks of your city. You try to torture our diplomats again, we'll level entire cities. That would end. That would end. They systematically and intentionally tortured dozens of our people and inflicted permanent damage on them in the modern world. Don't be such a stupid idiot that the fact that they did it with whatever that long string of technical sounding things was, uh, that, that, well, I don't know, that doesn't exactly count because no, no. 
If you bring down electric grids with hacking, it's the same as bringing it down with bombs. You know, the repair costs might be slightly less, but you see my point. You got to wake up, folks. I mean, an act of war is an act of war. Those were uh, sonic attacks that have left lasting results. Right. They have not recovered yet. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips here. I'm starting a Getty show, The Conscience of the Nation. Now, I'm not talking sending a bunch of guys in. Sending the Marines in. No. Conquer somebody. I'm talking about somebody punches you, you punch them back good and hard. That ends a lot of fights. It ends, it ends bullying. Gabby Morangello of the Washington Examiner in moments. Why you ought to care about the latest Beltway flap, the rumors in the papers, etc. about one Don McGahn, the White House counsel. Yeah, it could be kind of a big thing. Stay with us. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. a really good guy. Uh, been with me for a long time. Privately before this, he represented me. He's been here now. It'll be almost two years and uh, a lot of affection for Don. And he'll be moving on probably uh, the private sector, maybe the private sector, and he'll do very well. But he's, uh, he's done an excellent job. Don McGahn's the White House counsel. He's the, the head lawyer who deals with more than actually I realized uh, for the White House. You know, it's not exactly a shocking revelation that the White House deals with laws a lot. It's kind of why they're there. Um, and, and, and he's the head guy to, to, um, to manage that department. And he is going to be leaving, you know, fairly shortly. And there's been feverish reporting in various publications about the whys of, of that and the significance of it. A lot of it's just beltway self-obsession to my mind. But uh, Gabby Morangello has made a couple of interesting points um, in her piece in the Washington Examiner about the McGann departure and the significance that it might have. Uh, Gabby joins us now. Hey, Gabby, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, terrific. So, listen, uh, those of us who, who don't live in the, the, the dirty, stinking cesspool that is the Beltway of Washington, D.C., uh, we don't obsess over these things like y'all do. But uh, the McGann departure, why should we care about that? Why is that going to be a big deal? Well, look, I mean, it comes at a time when the president has really ramped up his criticism of Special Counsel Robert Mueller and his team, he's now facing this plea agreement with his former attorney, and we don't really know yet how that's going to play out for him, but um, who knows what cooperation between Michael Cohen and and the uh, federal investigators could mean for the president. And Don McGahn was really in charge of, you know, overseeing the Russia investigation, determining how the White House is going to respond to certain document inquiries and um, how they were going to handle cooperation. He himself spent 30 hours in interviews with the special counsel and his team of investigators. And so it is a big loss for the White House for somebody who's so widely respected in conservative circles, um, but also has the president's trust and the appreciation and um, trust of the special counsel to be leaving at this 
sort of fragile time for the administration. Right. I heard. I can't remember who said this. Maybe you'll recall uh, the other day said uh, Don McGahn's the best White House counsel I've ever worked with, and I've known them all. Um, that was McConnell. Uh, yeah, Mitch McConnell. That's right. Yeah, and he, you know, he's been there forever. Um, you know, yeah. for good or ill. Uh, the other thing, Gabby, that I've heard that that kind of snapped my eyes open is that if the Democrats were to win back the House, the White House would be answerable to all sorts of Democrat-controlled committees from Congress and inquiries and investigations and, you know, legitimate or harassing. And the White House Counsel's Office heads up all of that interaction. And if Don McGahn departs and takes with him several of his senior aides, which I've heard is is the case, that that could leave the White House um, in, a, in kind of a, a newbie state just as they have to take on a hostile Congress. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a a Democratic congressional majority would essentially open up the floodgates for all of these ethics investigations that Democrats have tried to push Republicans to pursue and which Republicans have refused to um, just in the past year and a half. You know, I spoke with somebody yesterday who had previously worked for a senior uh, Democratic congressman um, who said that if Democrats do take back control of the House in November, um, the biggest fear that President Trump should have is somebody like Elijah Cummings, the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, with the gavel and with subpoena power, because he will absolutely go after uh, some of these cabinet officials who have been subject to scrutiny for their lavish spending habits and um, some of the president's top aides, even his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, for some of the overseas real estate deals that he's been entangled in. And so, you know, I do think that that is something that is certainly a concern and it's on the radar for whoever um, President Trump chooses to succeed Dom again. And, and we do know that Emmett Flood has sort of been groomed for that position and he is well-liked inside the West Wing. So he seems right now to be the front runner to replace McGahn. Um, he's certainly somebody who was first added to the White House legal team by McGahn for the purpose of succeeding him when he left. And mm. so, I, you know, I think that he would be probably the most qualified and familiar with how to deal with all of that. Okay, and he certainly has a lot of people that he trusts. So I wonder whether the they'll, they'll have their pants down just when they need help. The narrative has probably been overstated by some of the mainstream media. Also, uh, you brought up uh, old uh, Emmett Flood, and uh, I was just about to bring up the I-word impeachment, and he actually defended Clinton back in the day. So, you know, if things go that way, and I still don't think they will, but um, if they do, uh, you know, Trump's probably in decent hands. Yeah, he, he's definitely an expert in um, that area, and he has a lot of experience in um, arguing for executive privilege, which is also something that President Trump might be dealing with if he is subpoenaed by the special counsel to uh, to testify. Oh, yeah, and it also occurs to me, one more thing with Gabby Morangello, the uh, Washington Examiner. She's a White House reporter. Uh, am I correct that the White House Counsel's Office heads up the uh, getting judges, judge appointments through uh, the Senate? That's correct. The White House Counsel's Office has really worked hand-in-hand with a lot of these conservative groups in D.C., like the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, um, to appoint all of these uh, judicial nominees that match President Trump's you know, requirements for being conservative and, um, 
originalists right. and all that. And so, and, and they've really appointed a record number at this point um, in the first year and a half of this presidency. So that's another thing that the president's certainly going to be looking at carefully when deciding who's going to take on this role. Gabby Morangello of the Washington Examiner. Gabby, thanks a bunch. Uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And I'm sorry the things I said about the Beltway. That was a little harsh. <laughs> They're all true. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Um, the enormity of the importance of the White House Counsel's Office was the reason I wanted to chat with Gabby about that. Uh, I didn't appreciate it. Um, you know, the fact that they they handled the, uh, the gathering of names, the vetting of the judges, then they liaison like crazy with the Hill on how to get them through, and they read the decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention that they are the White House's dealing with Congress if it comes to anything legal and then the impeachment deal and the rest of it. Uh, it's a hell of an important office. Which reminds me of another thing, which is the the tiny, teeny, microscopic portion of your government that you elect. It's almost insignificant. It's not insignificant, but it's a lot less significant than you think. The elected people. In terms of the way the government actually operates. Now, the counter-argument to that is, well, elections have consequences, so for, for people who will appoint people you like, blah, blah, blah. But the, the hang-up on that is a lot of it becomes permanent, and it just stays around forever and ever, and you're stuck with it no matter who you vote for. All right, total change of topic. Uh, today is the uh, is essentially our 20th anniversary. We're going to have the best of uh, tomorrow, but um, the guy who hired us, coming up next, took a chance on a couple of dimwits. We'll ask him why next on the Armstrong and Getty Show.